Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hi, welcome back to Medicus. This is Emily Hagen. And I'm Rasa. Today, we are excited to be speaking with Dr. Imran Urezi. Dr. Urezi is currently a surgical pathology fellow and clinical instructor in pathology at Loyola University Medical Center. He completed his pathology residency at the University of Chicago. In this episode, we'll discuss his experience switching medical specialties from internal medicine into pathology, as well as the field of pathology in general. So Dr. Urezi, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks very much, Emily and Rasa. It's a pleasure to be on with you today. So first off, before we jump in to more questions, we always like to get a bit of background on our guests. So can you please introduce yourself? Yeah, so uh, you hit a lot of the, uh, the key points for where I am right now in my career. Uh, I'm a surgical pathology fellow here at Loyola University Medical Center. Also a joint appointment as a clinical instructor, which will provide some opportunities for sign-out privileges in the back half of this year. Completed my pathology residency at the University of Chicago in anatomic and clinical pathology, and I served as chief resident too in 2019-2020. Prior to that phase, I was uh, an intern in internal medicine at the University of Chicago, um, and that's where I had decided to, to make the switch to pathology. And I did my medical school at the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry uh, in upstate New York. And during medical school, I did a, a year-out research fellowship as a Sarnoff Cardiovascular Research Fellow between my second and third years the Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston. Wow, it sounds like you've had a lot of diverse experiences, both in internal medicine and pathology. And as our you know, topic of this episode is a lot about switching from internal medicine to pathology, I think a good place to start would be for you to describe what initially led you to choose internal medicine before your work as now a pathologist. Sure. Yeah. So for me, it kind of goes back to high school, honestly. I had always been about anything that was related to the heart and by that extension to cardiology. As a junior in high school, there was a really cool opportunity at a local community hospital. It was a future physicians program, they called it. And it was like a six-week internship where we got a chance to rotate through various departments within the hospital and shadow physicians. Uh, this included, you know, going into the ORs, going into electrophysiology labs, learning to scrub in and everything too. So we were we were right there, scrubbed in for surgeries, spending time in the emergency department, labor and delivery. I was just, I loved my time on the cardiothoracic service, getting a chance to see open heart surgery, spending time with the cardiologists, looking at EKGs and all. So for me, that was sort of the spark. And ultimately, as I learned more about, you know, a career in cardiology, I saw that internal medicine is going to be a step along the way to become a cardiologist. So in my mind, as I was approaching medical school, too, that was sort of at the forefront of what I wanted to do. And during medical school, you know, that was always sort of, again, the guiding principle. I sort of on the surface conveyed that I was open to other things like surgery and anesthesia. But I think I was still really guided by this driving interest in cardiac physiology and, and the heart in general. And you tend to surround yourself with people that have similar interests. And so I was around a lot of people that were interested in cardiology as well. And, and I think um, as a result, I didn't necessarily get the exposure to other fields that may better match my goals and interests. 
And if they never cross your radar, then you're never going to even have a chance to discover them. And I had very little direct interaction with pathologists um, during medical school, and I never specifically sought it out either. But there were a lot of things that I enjoyed during medical school that are ultimately tied with the field of pathology, such as anatomy and histology, just to name a few, that in retrospect, and we can talk about this more, matched a lot more with what I ultimately found fulfilling. I think you touched on a lot of different important points just now with factors that affect one's specialty choice and the idea that like some medical students enter medical school already with a preconceived notion of what specialty they think is best for them, whether that's due to prior experiences like you had or what they've heard about the field, et cetera. So I think based on what I've heard, it's not uncommon for medical students to go into medical school thinking they want one field and then kind of closing off to the possibility of other specialties, even though they may like them, just like you mentioned, you enjoyed learning about pathology, but it wasn't something you were like actively considering because it sounds like you already thought you knew what you wanted and had that influence your ultimate decision to pursue medicine over pathology. But I'm wondering, do you think that if you entered medical school without such an established interest in cardiology and internal medicine, that you would have been more open to the possibility of pathology earlier on? That's a really good question. It's hard for me to picture going into medical school completely undifferentiated, which is funny because when I entered pathology, I think I kept a very open mind to its various subspecialties. But I do think that if I had come in a little more uh, undifferentiated to medical school, I might have been open to, to at least attending interest groups, events in various other specialties. You know, I did that for surgery. You know, that's a pretty big one. The medicine-surgery distinction is a pretty big deciding point in the decision tree for medical students. And so a lot of people start off saying, oh, yeah, I'd be open to maybe doing surgery. And then that whittles down, you know, as you go further along. But I think I might have thought a little bit more about pursuing some other opportunities. You know, one of the opportunities that the University of Rochester offers, and a lot of other medical schools do too, is, is a post-sophomoric fellowship in the pathology department. And that consists of essentially between your second and third years of medical school, you function as a, as a first-year resident in pathology. And so at the University of Rochester, they'd select, I think, two to three students to take a year out and spend time in their department. They would rotate through anatomic pathology, so surgical pathology, they do some autopsy. I think they even do some clinical pathology rotations as well. And the classmates of mine that did that um, rotation for the year came back and said it was an absolutely phenomenal experience. And one of the tricky things about picking the field too is, and going back to you know, my interest in cardiology, that interest in cardiology was, it was a lot of things that weren't necessarily related to the daily practice of cardiology. So I wasn't necessarily seeing patients in clinic as I was exploring this interest. I was doing a lot of research, echocardiography. It wasn't necessarily the day-to-day experience. And that's something that you don't really get until you're a medical student. And even when you're a medical student, you know, you try to be as engaged as you can and as active as you can um, when you're on these rotations, but you're only on for four to eight weeks at a time, maybe 12 weeks. And it's not really until you become a resident where you really take ownership and it's your daily job. You're not just on for eight weeks at a time, you're on for years now and you really delve into it. So going back to that post-sophomore fellowship, my classmates that had done it, 
came back and said, you know, I learned so much more about what pathologists do. You know, you learn from pathologists as a second year medical student and you're learning about disease processes. And in even that role of pathologists teaching medical students in the basic science years, it seems to be being more and more de-emphasized. We're trying to accelerate students into the clinical years. And that was a pretty key time for pathologists to interact with students. So that lack of interaction may also have an impact on whether students view pathology as a career. But doing a 12-month year out like that, even though a couple of them decided not to go into pathology, they had developed this, first of all, an amazing knowledge base of what pathology is comprised of and what what are things pathologists do for clinical teams and for patient care and the critical decision points that they contribute to in patient care. Uh, and one of them did end up going into pathology and had an incredible understanding of what pathologists do on a daily basis. Um, and it was the great foundation for her when she went off uh, pathology residency. I think one of the downsides of our curriculum, right, is that certain specialties like pathology, we really, they're not explored. They're not part of your core rotations, right? So unless you really seek it out, it's really hard for you to understand, like what you were saying, exactly what pathologists are doing in a day-to-day situation. And even, you know, in us learning from pathologists during our preclinical years, I mean, we really don't understand much about what they do exactly. We learned that, okay, pathologists look at slides and they identify diseases and all of that. But again, understanding, I think the day-to-day is key. So I think fast forward to you being, you know, in your internal medicine intern year, how did you come to decide to change these specialties? And kind of what did your reflection uh, process look like? It was a very, very difficult time in my life. You know, going in every day to work felt like pre-rounding and rounding and writing all these long notes. It was something that I, I didn't truly enjoy 100% when I was in, in medical school. But again, you know, I, I commented on how those, those experiences are so short in medical school. And I think, and they're challenging, right? I mean, when you're a medical student, you're trying to not only like impress the teams you're working with, but you're trying to also learn and, and it's tough. I mean, it's, it's all of a sudden you were sort of on your own schedule studying for your step one exam and you had all this freedom and all of a sudden now you're, you know, getting up at 5 a.m., 6 a.m. and you're having to pre-round on patients, you know, have these elaborate presentations or at least it feels like you have to give these elaborate case presentations and all. And, and that becomes the daily thing. So if it's, if you're not enjoying it at that point, it's possible that it's going to be magnified when you become an intern. Because intern year can be quite grueling. So for me, it was exactly that. I think it, it magnified a lot of the maybe very subtle doubts that I had during my medicine rotation. And again, I had very positive experiences, but overall with the residents and attendings that I worked with in medical school. But I think there were things about the daily role that I just didn't quite find 100% fulfilling. And it became even more magnified as an intern. And so that's where I really had to be honest and, and true to myself. And it took, and as I mentioned, it took an emotional toll on my mental health as well. And I'm not afraid to admit that I had to seek professional help for it. And it's not an uncommon thing. For medical students, you know, we're used to being very high achieving, you know, no matter what route you've taken to get to medical school. And at any point, I mean, you have to be, you've had so much success. You've had obstacles along the way, but generally you've, been able to overcome them. And to all of a sudden have a 
a path that you thought was laid out for you and you were meeting each obstacle as it came to all of a sudden have it sort of shaken up is a pretty jarring experience. So for me, it was helpful to have that dialogue with someone else and also to have that dialogue with mentors that I had made connections with along the way, even in cardiology. So I had phenomenal mentors from the University of Rochester, uh, Dr. Lowenstein, who was the chair of cardiology at the time at the U of R, um, and also with my research mentor uh, at the Brigham, Dr. Scott Solomon. I actually reached out to both of them and said, you know, I'm going through this, this really tough mid-intern year crisis, and I'm not sure how to get through it. And I was actually a little afraid to approach them at first. It took me several weeks to sort of muster the courage to face them because they had helped me each step of the way, you know, in the process of becoming a Sarnoff fellow and then applying for medicine residencies and all. And I almost felt like I was going to be letting them down in some way by not being 100% committed to internal medicine anymore. But it was a complete opposite reaction. They almost shrugged it off in a sense. They said, oh, okay, so what do you want to do? And I think I had to like take a little step back and say, wait, what? You're not like shocked by this in any way. They said, no, you need to find what you find passionate. So tell me what you like to do. And so I, I, I made a list. I said, well, I, I absolutely loved anatomy and histology, as I mentioned before. And even during my fourth year in medical school, when you have a lot more freedom with elective time, I used four to five weeks of that time to go back and teach the first years um, in their anatomy, histology, and physiology course. So I was up there in the anatomy labs and in the histology labs, assisting the students with any questions they had and doing review sessions and such. And I, I liked that part. And that's, it's really a core component of anatomic pathology when, you, when I reflect upon it. So that was one thing. You know, I liked the diagnostic process a lot more. For me, it, it became pretty clear that I didn't enjoy chronic medication titration and that sort of that aspect of medicine as much. And not to say that's not important, but it's just not what I found fulfilling. I really enjoyed being able to, I'm a very visual person. So for me, being able to see things in front of me, the gross pathology, the slides, the colors, that's what I enjoyed. And the issue was, was that when I was in the histology labs first and second year and, and such, you know, I was around people that maybe didn't find it as enriching. They sort of saw themselves bound for fellowships that didn't involve as much of those sorts of activities. So I think in some ways it projected onto me that, oh no, that's not what I want to do either. So this was a reflection process that I had to go through. And, and again, having mentors along the way at various stages of my career, I even reached out to my mentor back from undergraduate Duke University, who was my re research mentor, and he's in pediatric infectious disease. And he had this, a lot of the same support and a lot of the same advice for me too. And I think another very important thing was to have fortunate to have a very incredibly supportive program director in internal medicine. And so across the board, when you're searching for residencies, and that, that might be another discussion, is finding a program that you truly match with, you know, that's why it's, it's a match. You know, you want to find a program that's supportive of your career development. And that program director really connected me with the right people in pathology at the University of Chicago. Among them being, you know, Dr. Mirza, who has been a guest on your podcast previously, who was at the time chief resident at the University of Chicago, uh, among some other faculty members there. And, and they welcomed me and said, you want to learn about pathology? Absolutely. Come join us. That's incredible. So what do you think are some reasons other people might choose to switch specialties? There's a variety of reasons, right? So for me, it was 
combination of it not being maybe the right fit for what I was going to find fulfilling in my career. Um, for others, though, it, it may also be, you know, various lifestyle reasons. I mean, if we can be frank, for instance, being a general surgery resident, it's a very, or a neurosurgery resident, it's a, those are very demanding fields. You're on your feet for 12, 14, 16 hours a day, sometimes pulling very, very strenuous hours. If you have kids, you know, in residency, it can be very, very challenging. So for some people, it can be a lifestyle reason. And that's not to say that pathology is all eight hours a day, 40 hours a week. It, it can be pretty demanding in its own right, but it's a different type of demanding. And so maybe some people might align a little bit more with that lifestyle. It can sometimes just be logistics. You know, maybe there's a family need elsewhere in the country and, and you have to switch fields and you have to move somewhere else, um, and you might not be able to necessarily do it within the same field. I mean, some people have to make the decision based on that as well. So it can be, it's a very personal decision that will vary from person to person. So getting into a little bit of the nitty gritty of the technicalities of switching specialties, is the switch only possible at certain times of the year, or are you able to cross over at any point? And then the other thing I was really curious about is how GME funding works? Because from my understanding, it's that it's allocated for the term of the residency. So like if you start, you may already be like over your time that's allocated. So if you can comment on those things. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great point, Rasa. And you're right. The funding that you're allocated for your postgraduate training is based upon the first residency that you enter. So in my case, I was entering internal medicine, which is a three-year residency. So the funding that was allocated was for three years, of which one year had been used for my intern year. So I had two years remaining under that. So whichever program was going to take me was in some ways going to have to absorb the cost of the additional two years of training that would I would have because I thought anatomic clinical pathology residency is four years. And to be honest, it, it, I didn't really even know that that was a thing until it came up on my interviews where the program director said, you know, I'm not sure sort of what our flexibility is going to be in terms of funding. And at other places, it never even came up in discussion. So it was something that I retrospectively then in the middle of the inter interview season, I went back and looked and said, oh, wow, this is actually a thing. It's a bit arbitrary, but I mean, that's what it is. So for general surgery residents, you know, who have a five-year residency or neurosurgery residents who have a seven-year residency, if they decide to switch first or second year and they want to enter pathology, they won't have any issues, I think, in finding programs that won't have to find any additional funding. And and I don't know the exact logistics of what money gets moved around or, or what flexibility hospitals have within that. But I know that there is some reserve at a lot of places to adjust for that. Because in the end, programs, I mean, they want people that truly want to be a part of their specialty. And so if, if that's the case, they're going to try to find a way to make it work if they truly feel that you have a, a genuine interest in their field. Perfect. So is the switch only possible at certain times of the year? Or can you do it at any point? Yes. So it really depends on, you know, which program, if you're trying to enter a specific program, say at the same institution you're at, there are scenarios in which programs may have mid-year openings. And that might be because of a chain reaction of, of switches. Maybe there's one, one resident in, I don't know, say pathology who's switching into radiology mid-year because radiology has an opening. And so now all of a sudden you have a mid-year pathology opening. And so there are scenarios in which, you know, in the course of maybe you've applied for ERAS and you're going through that process, you interview and they say, oh, 
you have an opening and you can start actually in January, for instance, uh, that very well can happen, but it's, it's very sporadic, right? You don't know how predictable that is. Um, it's very rare, and I never heard of a program adding an additional spot in the middle of the year, in addition to the allocation they already have. So generally, it's probably it's going to be going through the match uh, again. So you have to re-enter the match. In my case, I had to re-enter the match. You know, I by the time I had decided that I wanted to switch, it was about two thirds of the way through my intern year. You know, at that point, the, the the interview process is essentially concluded, and you can enter the SOAP process. I forget what the acronym stands for, but it's essentially the process where you can see which programs have openings after the match, and you can go through that week long process of speaking with those programs, but a good number of people might say, you know what, I'm going to sort of wait this out and then reapply next year and, uh, and go through the match again. So I think that's generally where the bulk of the spots in people who are switching are filled is by going through the match again. Sounds pretty stressful. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it is, yeah. So is there a safety net for you if you don't get into the specialty of your choice? So like, would your program still retain you? That's a good question. And I, it's hard for me to know exactly from a program director's perspective what they would be thinking. But I do know, I mean, you have to remember that the program you're leaving is going to have to fill your spot and is going to have to also think about its upcoming year, right? So they're in the process of now interviewing for the upcoming year. And for them to be able to hold a spot for you while also still interviewing and making their rank list, it's a challenging position. So if you're going to switch to a new specialty, you have to really be 100% committed to it. And I think the programs to which you're applying are going to want to see you make that commitment. I mean, if you all, if you have that safety net, then it sort of makes, it could make a program think, well, are you really committed to switching to specialties like this? If you've got one foot halfway in the door and one foot halfway out. So I think. It's a bit of a leap of faith, right? I mean, it's a decision that you do not want to take lightly when you're switching, but you have to take a leap and, and really be committed to it. And it won't feel like that much of a leap if you really do love what you're trying to go into. In my case, when I made the decision to finally switch, everything leading up to it was incredibly stressful because it, it's like pushing that red button that says, do not push. You know, like, should I push it? But when I finally did, it was almost like this gigantic weight was lifted off of my shoulders. And everything after that, it just felt natural and easy to me because I wasn't feigning interest. I felt like every time I was going in for my observership, for instance, in pathology, I was looking forward to it every day. I stayed late and it wasn't because I was trying to impress anyone. It was literally just because I enjoyed what I was doing on a daily basis. And you want to convey that you're not necessarily running from something else into another specialty. You know, the fields that you're entering, they want to see that you have a true, genuine interest. And that holds, too, when you're applying for residencies the first time. They want to see that you're not choosing a specialty by process of elimination and that you've landed on their specialty. They want to see that you have a, an innate interest in being a part of that field. So there's something I wanted to ask you after, but I think now would be a better time to switch topics into this. I am wondering what it was like needing to rework your application to be geared toward pathology residency programs so quickly. As you explained, you were in your intern year in internal medicine and went through the stressful process of realizing you wanted to change specialties and then apply to pathology. But how did you craft your application to 
one, effectively convey that you were interested in pathology, but also like logistically, how did you go about crafting your application in terms of speaking to mentors about how to create an effective pathology residency application and knowing what comprises a quote, good unquote pathology application. So what did that process look like for you? Sure, that's a really good question. So as I mentioned, I you know decided two thirds of the way through my internet that I wanted to switch. And I actually did look through the SOAP to see programs that were available. And there were some pretty phenomenal programs that had openings. But I made the conscious decision to opt for the next year's match. And that meant that I'd be spending, you know, upwards of more than a year outside of a residency. But I was fortunate enough to take on a research position at the University of Chicago. And I looked at that as an opportunity to show and demonstrate that interest in pathology, because you're right, my application wouldn't have changed very much, you know, in the eight months that I was an intern, you know, and then I, and then when I decided to switch, there wasn't much that really demonstrated that I actually was committed to switching into pathology aside from just doing an observership. But that additional year, and, and that additional year, again, it feels like a big cost, right? When you talk about a cost-benefit thing, it can initially feel like you're really mortgaging an entire year, and then you're going back to being a PGY-1 too. But you have to view it more as an investment in your future. And so for me, I'm like, okay, well, now I'll be demonstrating a year-long interest in pathology-specific research. While I'm doing that, I had an opportunity to attend all the didactics, resident didactics that they had at the University of Chicago. They went to like their grand rounds, you know, their research presentations. I was right there in the department too. So somebody was about to sign out cases with an attending at a, at a multi-headed scope. I would simply ask, can I, you mind if I sit down and join? And they said, absolutely. So these were the things then that became a part of my application. And it made writing my personal statement again to explain my desire to switch into pathology. It, it made it pretty easy because I was already showing that I'm doing a lot of these things to really figure out how much I enjoy pathology. And again, it came naturally because I didn't find it unfulfilling in any way. I found every day fulfilling. So in that sense, the application sort of took care of itself. There was nothing that I had to, I just punched in what I'd been doing, reworked my personal statement to explain why I was switching and and what about pathology in particular that I had found. And I had so much evidence now over the course of that year to cite as specific evidence. And then, you, you know, in the course of that year too, I, I found new mentors within pathology that I developed a relationship with. So you have to get field specific letters of recommendation. And that wasn't terribly difficult to do because I had cultivated so many relationships over the course of that year in the department. Well, I mean, it sounds like you definitely did craft a very convincing case for why you now wanted to pursue pathology. But I'm just wondering when you then went on your pathology residency interviews, did interviewers ask you questions about how you know for sure that you want to be a pathologist? And how do we know as a program that you're not, you know, really undecided and you're not going to want to change your mind again type idea. I mean, maybe they wouldn't have asked that so explicitly, but if they wanted to like truly know that you're now committed to pathology, I imagine that they may have asked you questions along those lines. So I'm just wondering if they did and if the interviews questioned your decision making at all. Absolutely. I mean, that was in various ways that question was asked. Okay, so what led you to decide to switch? So that was definitely something I had to be ready for. 
And answering that question ended up not being that difficult because I had invested an entire, what ended up being a year and a half because I started to explore that pathology observership halfway through my intern year. So by the time I was interviewing, it had been about a year, close to a year. And then by the time I actually matriculated as a resident, it had been a year and a half since, you know, I had started exploring pathology. So I had so much to go on experience wise. I mean, in many ways, it sort of became a year equivalent to what that post-sophomoric fellowship was. Being able to cite so many specifics for things that I've seen now in pathology that I've actually been actively engaged in. I had the opportunity in that year to work on a project that led to um, an abstract to go and present at one of the big pathology meetings, the USCAP meeting, the United States and Canadian Academy of Pathology meeting, you know, where I got a chance to interact with a lot of these very people that, that I saw on the interview trail. So I said a lot of these things, but in my applications, it was sort of reflected that I had done so much to demonstrate that interest that I said, well, you know, I've invested a year and a half in it and I know that I like it now. I had never had this extended of an experience even during medical school in any field. So it seems like a challenging question, but again, if you are making the decision for the right reasons, it ends up not being that tough. That's awesome advice. In the end, some people might say like you wasted some time, but you have the rest of your life to work in a specialty. And I think you have to consider the cost benefit of staying in a specialty where you're not completely happy versus, you know, losing perhaps a year and a half, but it sounds like you really made it work and really enjoyed your time. But then, you know, ending up on the other side and enjoying the rest of your life in a specialty in a career that you're really passionate about. So I was just wondering if you found any transferable skills from your time as an internal medicine resident that maybe made you a better pathology resident? Absolutely. That's, that's a fantastic question. I think if anything, having experience or background in another specialty, you know, regardless of what you're switching into, it's going to add a new dynamic, a new perspective that you bring to a program. So, I mean, I had a co-resident who switched from a general surgery residency that she was in for five years before she switched into pathology. And she brought this very, very phenomenal perspective because she knew what surgeons are thinking when they send frozen section consultations, what margins they're looking for on a specimen. So she already had that intuitive knowledge that you get from surgery. And she was able to easily translate that into pathology. In my case, as a medicine resident for a year, I, I learned how to, you know, find information in the EMR. That's a whole nother challenge is how to find that information. And then in medicine, you have to know how to navigate it really fast and pathology too. But I sort of, when I entered pathology residency, I could read between the lines too in the notes and what the clinical team was thinking. I knew how to correlate. I knew how to interface with the clinical colleagues as well. You know, I had some personal connections, but I also just knew sort of that they were under a lot of stress. Everyone in medicine is under a lot of stress. So being able to answer their questions in a targeted fashion or to know what to ask of them so that we can better help them as pathologists was incredibly helpful. And Thinking back to medical school and some of the electives that I did, and as a medicine resident, when you're in the ICU, or even when you're on the floors, you might have to sometimes take a quick look at a film, a CT scan, just, you know, you have to make a call sometimes. The radiologist will have their read for sure, but you also have to know how to do those things. And so for me, in pathology too, when you're looking at a specimen, you're looking at a specimen under, under the microscope, it's helpful to know what the radiology shows. And they have their report, but 
seeing it with your own eyes is also a very helpful exercise. So those were skills that I did cultivate during my medicine internship. And so they absolutely translated. And even in that year out of research that I did in echocardiography during medical school, I learned a very portable set of skills. And, and my PI at the time, Dr. Solomon, he said that year, I want you to learn a set of skills that will be portable and translatable to whatever field you go into. And he even explicitly said, even if you don't go into cardiology, I want you to be able to do clinical research you know, using these sets of skills. He says, I want you to learn how to form a hypothesis, form a study, collect data, analyze it, write your paper, go through an intensive review process. And no matter what you do, those skills are going to be helpful. So this combination of things, even though they weren't necessarily tied to pathology overtly, they all fed into that experience. And that goes for, regardless of even deciding about switching specialties, just picking a field in medical school you sort of feel like, well, I got to commit to something so I can develop these connections and build up my CV. The point is, you're probably going to switch what you want to do several times during medical school. But there does come a time where you maybe have to run with something and realize that even if you switch out of it, you're going to learn some set of skills that's going to be helpful into whatever you do decide to go into. So don't view it as the lost investment. It's all feeding into your story and fostering into your career development. So Whatever you do, you know, just put your all into it and know that it's still contributing to who you're going to become. I think those are all really valuable points for our listeners to hear. And I actually just want to circle back to one point you made just before as well, when you mentioned that one of your colleagues switched from surgery into pathology five years into their surgery residency. So I'm really glad you brought that up because I was actually planning on asking about how based on what I've heard as a student being interested in pathology, that is actually quite common, or not common, but not unheard of, for pathology residents to have switched from a different specialty, and that it actually sounds like a lot of them switch from surgery in particular. So I was just wondering if you've noticed this as well, and if you have, why you think this might be the case. I think the perception that a lot of people are switching in from other specialties to pathology, it's fed in part because there's no core pathology rotation in your third year or fourth year of medical school. I mean, you do medicine, you do surgery, you do neurology, psychiatry, OB-GYN, pediatrics. I think radiology maybe is a core at some places, but not all. So, you know, that in and of itself, there's going to be a certain percentage that are going to coming into pathology in a different way. They're not going to be necessarily coming in directly from medical school. And surgery, I mean, it can be a very physically grueling path. And it's not just the residency. I mean, if you think about even uh, career-wise, they do some incredible work. I mean, they're on their feet every day for hours at a time, you know, all scrubbed up and in gown and gloves and everything. And they're very stressful situations, right? I mean, every surgery is different in the same way that every case in pathology is a little bit different. But the physical toll can certainly be something that even within a few years, you might realize, well, maybe this isn't necessarily the right field for me. And then we've also discussed, you know, lifestyle and family considerations for a lot of people that feeds into their decision. So, I mean, I don't know the exact proportion or numbers of people that are coming into pathology from surgery, but that might be one of the reasons why it seems to be perceived as the biggest feeder into people switching into pathology. But we have people, you know, going in from internal medicine like myself, 
various other fields. I mean, and there are people too that switch the other way. I mean, there are people that have started off in pathology and then realize I really miss seeing patients regularly. And so they switch into internal medicine. That's not to say that doesn't happen. It, it certainly does. And I know a couple stories, you know, close to programs that I've been in that have had that happen. It goes both ways for sure. That definitely makes sense. Now I'm hoping that we can delve into some questions about pathology as a specialty. So like many other specialties, pathology seems to be one that is subjected to various stereotypes. And I think the fact that you and many others were initially interested in a different specialty before switching into another speaks to the fact that these pathology stereotypes are not very legitimate. And I think you're uniquely positioned to talk about them given that you were initially interested in internal medicine. Would you be able to explain what you think the top stereotypes are that are associated with pathology? Yes. So the stereotype is first off from the clinical side. Yeah, I I just cut this specimen out and I send it to pathology. It goes through some black box and it's supposed to spit out a diagnosis in a couple of days. Okay, that's the one thing on the anatomic side. On the clinical side, it's, oh, this patient needs blood work drawn. You put blood in this tube, and then it, it goes into a uh, black box, and it spits out a value within a couple of hours, right? And you don't realize all the things that go on behind the scenes to make it work. The thought is, is that, oh, the pathologists are sitting down in the basement somewhere, not interacting with anyone, just looking under the microscope all day, which we do. We spend a lot of time around the microscope, but um, what we're fielding phone calls from clinicians, discussing cases with them, tumor board conferences, we're right there discussing pathology reports, things that we're seeing on the slides that correlate with what they're seeing clinically. We're interacting with our staff, our tremendous laboratory staff and medical laboratory scientists that do a lot of the technical work that goes into laboratory testing. Our pathologist assistants, you know, we're interfacing with them face-to-face very often because they're specialists in gross pathology and what we see under the microscope is only as good as what section and what's described grossly. So there's a lot of moving parts there. You have to interact with a ton of people. It might not be patients directly as much. Granted, pathologists do interact in blood banking, in apheresis services, cytopathology, FNAs. There's plenty of interactions directly with patients, but even though it may not seem that we're as patient-facing, we still deal with people all the time and you have to be visible in order to gain any sort of notoriety for your field. You have to be visible. Social media has helped with that process quite a bit too, to get the word out on what pathologists do. And it's still a stereotype that has to be fought. I mean, as an internal medicine resident myself, I didn't know exactly what pathologists did. I didn't realize that they were managing and overseeing the laboratories and blood transfusions and all of that process, because you won't learn it if you don't seek it out during medical school. And there's only so much you can also learn in medical school. The body of knowledge is growing and growing and growing to the point where you can't fit it all in at that time. So that's another challenge is that a lot of these things have to be sought out after uh, by medical students themselves. And if you don't know it exists, you won't ever even think about consulting or making a consideration that, oh, this is what actually happens. <laughs> Steering away from the stereotypes, what are your favorite things about pathology? That's a tough one to answer because there's just so many things that I find really enjoyable in the course of the day. It sounds so cliche, but it's true that, you know, every day in the cases that I look at from as a surgical pathology fellow, there's just something different that I see every day, or it's a variation of 
of something that is commonly seen, but there's something a little bit different about it. And then piecing that together, you know, with the clinical history is just incredibly exciting. It's also just being in an environment where people show me interesting cases. And when we say interesting cases, these are cases that, you know, we're playing a really critical role in. There are plenty of scenarios in which the clinicians are thinking one thing, maybe there's a lung mass that they think is just something infectious. And then we get the FNA biopsy or the tissue core biopsy. And all of a sudden we see this infiltrative population of malignant cells. And we say, hang on a second, this might actually be a malignancy. And to be able to make that call and to contribute that to a patient's care is so critical, right? I mean, to be able to act upon that information quickly. So we provide information that needs to be acted upon, you know, urgently. It's a very critical decision point in patient care. And even though we're not necessarily directly conveying that news to a patient, we, we still feel just as responsible as the patient-facing colleagues that we have. So for me, that's one thing. The other thing is, again, that, you know, it's not just about surgical pathology. You know, I still enjoy listening in on and being a part of clinical pathology discussions because there is a lot of things that go hand in hand between anatomic and clinical pathology. There's a lot of a lot of case conferences too that even at Loyola that we have where there are certain physiologic things that happen with certain tumors, for instance, that create, you know, derangements in blood work. So we correlate what we see in the laboratory studies of with, you know, this tumor that we found, this tumor that secretes ACTH, for instance, you know, and so you correlate that with the laboratory work that you have. So there's a lot of really cool patterns that you can see emerge. And what's neat too is that you do have longitudinal follow-up with patients as well, right? I mean, there's patients that we follow for breast cancer or for prostate cancer, for instance, and you can see sort of, oh, I see something, you know, worrisome developing now that the patient's been surveilled for two or three years. You know, I'm seeing a, a much more concerning pattern of prostate cancer here. So we discuss that with our urology colleagues and say, I think this might be something that, that needs to be resected. So you, without thinking about it, have longitudinal care in addition to having this cross-sectional point of care. And I've sort of rambled on here, but again, you also have phenomenal interactions with medical students because you get to teach them the basis of disease and you get to show it to them. You don't even have to just have a discussion about it. You can literally show them like, here's the slide or here's the gross picture. Here's the, the laboratory and here's the RT-PCR curve that's showing you that this patient is positive for this virus. You can visualize and you can show that evidence. And I think that's also a very, very fulfilling part of it as well. Thank you. We were just wondering if when you decided to pursue pathology as a specialty, if you knew that you would further specialize and pursue a fellowship. Because I also know that you elected for anatomic and clinical as opposed to just anatomic or just clinical. So I'm just wondering what that thought process was like. Yes. So the, the initial draw for me in the pathology was only what I knew about it. And that was that, oh, yeah, you know, they make microscopic diagnosis on tissue. They do autopsies. So I think generally it's the anatomic side that can catch a lot of medical students' attention because it's so visual. Clinical pathology, I think there's a good number of MD-PhD students that maybe know a little bit more about clinical pathology because they pursued a PhD, say, in microbiology or in chemistry. And so they know the laboratory environment a little bit more and know that that's a critical part of pathology. So for me, you know, when I rotated in um, as an observer at the University of Chicago, I got some experiences in the clinical pathology laboratories. And it, for me, it was just 
completely eye-opening because I had no idea there was this whole assembly line and this whole process that went on behind the scenes in the laboratories that was managed by an MD or MD PhD or even a PhD during this time. So during that year and a half that I was doing research in ecology, I made sure to delve into those experiences a little bit more too on my off time and to learn about them. So when I started residency, I came in with a very open mind and a lot of pathology residents will come in starting anatomic and clinical. And that's because it just keeps a lot of doors open for you in terms of jobs. Because if you do end up wanting to go into community practice or private practice setting, even if you bring an anatomic subspecialty fellowship to the table, they, they're going to want you to oversee something in the clinical labs, some component of that. So you have to be trained in CP and board certified in CP for that. So that's why a lot of residents keep that open. Now, there's a, a number of residents that decide, well, I truly want to go in academics. And that's when you might decide on anatomic or clinical alone, because you know you want to be in that setting and you have a specific focus that you want to keep. There are a number of people that go into, into academic fields that are still AP and CP like myself. So it's more of just sort of keeping doors open in that sense. And as an anatomic clinical path resident, you rotate through everything. I mean, you spend, you know, at least three months in clinical chemistry and microbiology, uh, hematopathology, molecular, and on the AP side, you're doing surgical pathology and autopsy. So for me, you know, you don't have to really decide on fellowships until the end of your second year in pathology. And to answer your question about if I knew I was going to go into fellowship after residency, the answer was, I knew that was going to have to be yes, because you really do have to do some sort of fellowship after your residency pathology. It's become such a large field that even if you go out to practice in the community, you have to bring some sort of subspecialty expertise to the table, whether that be in a subspecialty of surgical pathology or in cytopathology, hematopathology. If you want to go into academics, you know, they want you to have a subspecialty interest, at least of some kind, if not a fellowship. And so you have to pursue some sort of fellowship training. For the job and it doesn't necessarily have to be two there are people that pursue two like myself or even i've even even three in some cases but you need to have at least one fellowship you know under your belt and that again it just depends on your career and academic interests for that great so i think we'll now jump into some like lasting questions to wrap things up you've shared a lot of valuable insights throughout the interview but a bit of a you know broad question here that hoping you can touch upon is what do you think you wish your younger medical student self knew prior to making your decision to apply to internal medicine residency programs that you perhaps now know about yourself? Absolutely. So I think one thing is during my first and second years is seeking out seeking out some other interest groups. You know, I, I mentioned surgery being one, and I obviously took part in, in the cardiology interest group a lot, but I should have explored a few more, even if just if it was for once, at least just to see what it was about. And I think maybe that could have planted the seed a lot earlier for pathology. So just if it feels like there's no chance, just try it out once. Sometimes it's just a matter of going for an hour and a half, an hour long interest group meeting and talking to some of these specialists, just shadowing them even, you know, just for an afternoon or something and asking them about their careers. So doing something like that, you know, and in your elective time in medical school, you tend to want to pick things that you know you enjoy and that you, and that you want to quote unquote prepare you for whatever field you're going to go into. But maybe do something that you, you might not never see again. 
there are plenty of stories of people who, you know, surprisingly do something they didn't think they would like early in their fourth year. And then they realize, oh, oh, I actually really, really like this. And they totally switch what field they're going to apply for by September. So I would just say to step out of your comfort zone a little bit. You know, we tend to like things that are comfortable to us, but maybe step out and, and take a two week elective in something that's a little bit off the beaten path. You're going to learn something from it regardless. So to so do that. And I think also just sort of take the time to, you know, maybe make a list of what you enjoy and what you don't enjoy about each field that you experience. I think when you start writing it out and documenting it, you might get a clearer sense of what might be the best fit for you. I think those are all really helpful tips of advice for future physicians. And I'm actually really glad you brought up the point that you should encourage yourself to try out a field that you may not have thought of initially. And even if that's like not until your fourth year, still, why not? Because just the other day, actually, I was working with my preceptor for one of the classes we have to take as a second year medical student at Loyola. And I asked him if he always knew he wanted to pursue emergency medicine. And he said, no, like all throughout medical school, I was set on anesthesiology. And then fourth year, I decided to do an EM rotation just because I had the room in my schedule. And Mm -hmm. I absolutely loved it. And he was like, if I didn't have that month-long even rotation, I would have pursued anesthesiology and I don't think I would be as happy as I am now. And so I found what you said really resonating. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. I, it's, it's, it's uncanny sometimes how people all of a sudden discover, discover something that they didn't realize um, would be a terrific fit for them. <laughs> totally. I think it just highlights how every experience is potentially so valuable and you've nothing to lose by putting yourself out there even if it's like reaching out to a doctor professor who seems interesting and whose work you, um, you know, had some reaction to just to reach out and you never know where that may take you. One last question we have is what advice could you possibly give to medical students about how to approach choosing a specialty? Absolutely. So the ultimate goal is that you never have to go through the process of switching, right? You want to get it right the first time because Switching is certainly a stressful process, but as we've discussed, it's not a uh, totally impossible task by any means, but you know, you want to try to get it right the first time. And so a lot of things we've hit on already, you know, trying a little bit of everything. And if there's something that you like a little bit more early on, you know, by all means delve into it. Worst case scenario, you decide not to go into it, but you at least gain some research experiences. Um, you develop connections and skills that will translate and be portable into whatever you do, and they'll be a part of your story. And even during your M3 year, you really don't have to decide on what you want to go into until the latter half of the year to the early part of your fourth year, because you're not applying until September. You still got time. So it's important to keep self-evaluating, you know, use your elective time, not just for the things that you love, but maybe for things that take you out of your comfort zone and things that might end up making you a more well-rounded physician regardless of what you go into. And you might be pleasantly surprised. It's tough because you have such limited time. I mean, first of all, you have to also just learn, right? I mean, your first and second year, there's so much book learning. There's so much information you have to absorb. It's already hard enough to try to go and have all these other experiences. It takes a lot out of your time. You know, if you delve into a few things, you try a few things here and there, I think your path will sort of 
start to become a little more clear as you keep self-evaluating and being upfront and honest about what you're enjoying and disliking about each experience and seek out advice like this. You know, when I was going through this process, medical student podcasts were not a thing as far as I remember. So you guys are really being able to tap into resources that were not available then. I mean, social media too is an incredible tool for any field now. You can connect with people from all stages of their career, from trainees all the way up to full-fledged famous professor. You can interact with them and they're there and they will respond to you. So you have a lot to tap into and it can be can be overwhelming. So you take it as much as you can. And all of that's going to be part of, of you figuring it out. And don't feel like you're doing something wrong if you don't know exactly what you want to do heading in your third year or even late in your third year. It's all a part of a process that you have to trust. And if you're being honest with yourself, you'll find what you want to do eventually. Thank you for those incredible words of wisdom. We just want to thank you so much for your time. I know I've definitely learned a lot. I'm sure Emily did too. And I know our listeners will as well. So again, we really appreciate your time to talk about these two really cool topics, I think, that aren't maybe discussed as much as they should be. Well, thanks so much for having me, uh, Emily and Ross. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. And of course, I'm I'm more than happy to chat with anyone that has questions about pathology or, or finding what's right for them. And you can find me on social media. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relation is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Views and opinions are their own and do not represent any organization.